you have a scripture in front of you, you may want to have it open to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking at uh, the first 13 verses or so in that chapter. Last week, we tried to suggest that we need to say goodbye and get rid of God and stuff. Uh, We pointed out that uh, for a lot of people, uh, belief in God really doesn't go any further than just, I believe in God and stuff. And there's no intention to go any further than that, any deeper than that, with any more commitment than that. And uh, what we did was we turned to the very first verse of the Bible. And there, as we looked at the fact that God is our creator and we are creation, we realized that this is a whole different way of looking at the world than most people look at the world. Uh, To know that God is our creator radically transforms how we view the things around us, the creation around us, and it radically transforms how we view ourselves. We come to understand that the meaning of life, the purpose of life, life's direction, life's guidance, all of that doesn't exist within ourselves, but rather because God is creator, he is the purpose and the goal, he is the direction of our lives. And so we approach life as believers in the God who created the world. We we just approach things entirely differently. You see, when you believe in God and stuff, you're going to say things like, well, how do you feel? What do you think? What's your opinion? Well, you have your way and I have my way. Um, Everybody's able to decide for themselves. If you want to get really deep about that, that's basically existentialist philosophy. But in point of fact, it's the way most people run their lives. They run it on the basis of how do I feel? What do I think? What is my assessment of things? I'm just sort of trying to figure out as I go along. And is it any wonder that we as a society, that we as a a people, a culture, have pretty much lost our way? Because we've lost sight of the fact that God, our creator, is the one who defines the purpose of life. It is for the glory of God. That our creator is the one who defines what we ought to do and ought not to do. He is the righteous one, the holy one. When you don't know that, when you're believing in just in God and stuff, you're pretty much figuring out things on your own as you go along. But we know that God is creator. And so when we come to life's decisions, and when we come to to the most formative aspects of what we think and, and, and our values and our morals. We don't ask, well, what do I think? We ask, what is God's word? We don't ask, you know, how do I feel about things? We ask, what does God want of me? What does he require of me? Now, I know some people will say, well, you know, everybody uh, knows that we ought to be good people and just and kind and fair and so forth. Um, Well, I'm not so so sure everybody does know that. I know that folks who come out of a godly culture and a godly upbringing, they may have rejected God, but they have the residue of that and the momentum of that. And they don't know why, but they they think, well, that's what I feel. But actually, it's been taught to them. No, when when you come at life and you say, well, I just believe in God and stuff, you're actually on your own and you're alone in all that. No one can really tell you what the truth is. But when you know that God is our creator, then you know that he is the purpose of our existence. To live for his glory is why we are here. 
that the, the direction of our lives should always be bringing us closer to God and to who He is and to be exalting Him in all that we do, that we created in the image of God who created us, that we are living so that we might be reflective of His power and His wisdom and His glory in our lives. So just as a running start into today's thoughts, uh, we, we realize that it's not enough just to say God and stuff. We need to understand God is our creator, the one who has the rights of sovereignty, the rights of headship over us. He is the one who has the right and the prerogative to direct us. And so God is the one who defines our lives. Now, we didn't read all of chapter 1, we didn't read chapter 2, but if we had read those chapters, we would have learned that God created the heavens and the earth, and he did that in an orderly, progressive way, that God created the universe and all that exists in it with a purpose, and he gave to each element and aspect of creation its rightful place and order and function in the world, that he created humanity, male and female, he created them, and that uh, as he uh, brought human beings into existence. He gave them something to do in the garden. He gave them a place to be. He gave them a reason to be. And so if we had read the first two chapters, we would have found that God's declaration about his creation, the way he created and, and designed it, was that it is good. It is very good. God's creation is good. But what happened? What happened? We need to know why it is that we don't see a lot of goodness around us. We don't see a lot of goodness in, in our lives. You know, what happened? And I, I could almost uh, suggest to you this morning that what happened was that Adam and Eve in the garden, our first parents, that as they had a perfect fellowship with God, a, a, with, without any sin breaking the the bonds of fellowship between their creator and, and, and Adam and Eve, that as they lived in that existence, that they gave that up in order that they might believe in God and stuff. Because when you say, I believe in God and stuff, essentially you're saying, I believe in God as long as he leaves me alone. And I believe in God as long as he's not serious about it. And I believe in God as long as it doesn't really actually challenge me or change me or call me to do anything that I wouldn't want to do otherwise. And so I want for us to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and as we look at Genesis chapter 3, to see what went wrong with God's creation. It wasn't his design. It was our rebellion and our rejection. What happened, if you will, is that Adam and Eve sank into believing in God and stuff, and that's all. They had to believe in God and stuff because they came to believe, as, as the serpent uh, suggested to them, that in point of fact, God must be unreasonable. We find that in the first verse, the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that you can't eat anything at all? And you can see Eve just thinking about that and saying, well, no, that, that can't be true. That would be unreasonable. And so she said, no, God said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the, uh, the, the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
She sort of added to what God had said. God didn't say anything about touching it. But, you know, that's sort of admirable. But basically she's saying, well, God said we, we can do this. But Satan comes and says, isn't God actually being unreasonable in all this? I mean, if, if he says you can't eat of that one tree, he might as well say you, you can't eat of any tree. You might as well give up on having any fun at all. See, this, this idea that God is being unreasonable is, is a very uh, sort of childish, preschool sort of idea. Uh, those of you who have, who have small children in your lives, I know that at some point they're going to say, you never let me do whatever. You never let me have any fun. You never let me do this, do that. You never do that. And so to, to reject God means to, to go to God and say, you know, God, you're actually being unreasonable. This doesn't, you don't make any sense, God. The, the, these whole commandments things, they don't make any sense. Sure, you've, you've got ten commandments. But have you really thought about them, God? They don't make any sense. What, what, what's this? There's only one God? Look around. Look at all the religions. Look at all the temples. There's got to be many gods. And by the way, there might be one better than you are. What's this thing about you, you don't take the, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain? That, that's unreasonable. God, don't you understand that sometimes you get really, really angry? Don't you understand that sometimes you really have to say something? That's unreasonable. What's this thing about keeping the Sabbath holy? I mean, really, that, that's just not going to work. And then you go on with all these other things. You can't lie, you can't cheat, steal, adultery, and covet. I mean, come on, this coveting thing. Don't you know that's what makes American business run? God, you're being unreasonable. And yet everything that God commands us ultimately works for our good. Because everything that God commands us ultimately brings us to his glory. You know, in uh, 1 Corinthians ch- uh, chapter 1, Paul is talking about the gospel that proclaims the cross of Jesus Christ. And one of the things Paul says about it is this. He says, you know, when Greeks, that is philosophically oriented people and, and non-Judaic um, people, he says, and, and when, when the Gentiles and the Greeks, when they look at this message of the cross, that the Son of God died on a cross for our sins... They'll tell you that that's absolute foolishness. It's unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. But then Paul went on to say, but for those of us who understand what God was doing, for those of us in whom the Holy Spirit has awakened an an awareness of who Christ is and what it means that he died on the cross for us, this gospel of the sacrificial death of Jesus It's not only reasonable, it is the very wisdom and it is the very power of God in our lives. The book of Isaiah, God says to the prophet, he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You know, what really makes sense, what would be reasonable is that God would punish sin and punish it immediately and absolutely and eternally. What would really make sense would be that God would stop us in our sin and judge us and condemn us and punish us for our sins for all eternity. But there is a wisdom in God that is even greater because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. 
And when he asks us to come and to reason, it's not that we can dialogue with God and he can learn something from us. Let's reason together by listening to the wisdom of God, which is in Christ Jesus, who died for us. And so to talk about any particular sin or any particular decision, and God's will is set before you, and you say, well, that's just not reasonable. We need to understand that God is wisdom, that Jesus Christ is the very wisdom of God. But if you believe in God and stuff, you're going to say, well, God is unreasonable. That's the stuff part. I believe in God, but, you know, this other stuff, come on. But then the next thing that happens is that uh, uh, they say, well, God is actually untrue. You see, the the serpent said, and this is in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God said you would die. I'm telling you, he's not going to die. God really doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just trying to manipulate you into, into certain behaviors that he wants. But in point of fact, God is not telling you the truth. There's actually you know, something more going on here that you have to realize. You see, in order to reject the promises and the wisdom of God, we essentially have to turn to God and say, you know, God, you're lying to me. When you tell me that I need to have faith in Jesus Christ, I don't think I do. You're lying to me. When you tell me that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory and that the wages of my sin is death, God, you're lying to me. See, when you believe in God and stuff, you're going to say things like that. You're going to say, well, God, you're, you're lying to me. You're not really giving me the whole story, the whole truth. But Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that he is the truth of God. And that God is unable to lie. That God himself is truth. Things are true because they are reflective of who God is. And so God is the very definition of truth. You believe in God and stuff, at some point you're going to say, well, that that thing that God's saying, that's, that's not really all that true. But those of us who've been moved by the Holy Spirit of God to realize who Jesus Christ is, understand that in Jesus Christ resides all the truth of God. That in Jesus Christ we see the truth of what life is really all about and what life actually means. And so we go off tangent when we start saying, well, God, you're not true all the time. It's not real all the time. Uh, it, it's sort of the attitude that says, well, God, uh, why don't you tell me what your will is and I'll consider it. Or God, why don't you let me know what you want me to do and I'll take it under advisement I'll compare it to some other suggestions and I'll come up with a plan of my own. I suspect that might be why so often we don't know and have no assurance about what the will of God because the way is, because the way to know the will of God is to say, Father, no matter what, I'll do it. Whatever you ask, my answer is yes. And so Eve, the serpent said to Eve, you know, you're... Your God is lying to you. He's not really true. But in point of fact, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And then it seems that uh, this whole issue of, is God really interested in your welfare uh, comes up. And Satan says, well, actually, Eve, what you have to know is that God is not really interested in your well-being. In uh, verse 5, he says to Eve, God knows that when you eat of it, 
Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Why, Eve, if you just would partake of the fruit, you'll know what God knows. You'll be just like God. It's actually better for you. God's holding out on you, Eve. He's not really interested in your well-being. And the world today that believes in God and stuff will say, you know, actually, this this whole thing about uh, following God, that, that's not actually for your welfare. You know, God's holding out on you. There's, there's actually a more interesting life, a better life. You know, the drugs will help you along a little bit. And, and sadly, our whole culture and society and now our governmental laws are buying into this lie that somehow you can take a drug that will make you feel better and make your life better. Or will come and tell you that, well, if you, uh, if you honor se- uh, um, life and you honor uh, the, the, the sanctity of life, that your life will be worse, that actually you need to understand you come first before an unborn life. God's not interested in your well-being, but in point of fact, God is. For what he commands of us always works for our good. You know, no matter what of it, it, it is, God causes all things to work together for our good because we love him and we're in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in our lives. The saying comes along and says, you know, God's not really interested in you. One of the amazing things about the life of Jesus Christ is that he took an interest in people, and not just a casual interest, but he took a deep interest in people. And he was so interested in their well-being and so interested in their lives that he was constantly being interrupted by people. There was one time he was in uh, uh, the home uh, of, uh, of, uh, of his host and, and a great crowd was in the room and he was preaching to the crowd and teaching the crowd and nobody could get in the building and four guys brought their friend who was on a, on a pallet who was, who was uh, uh, paralyzed and they couldn't get in so they went up on the roof. You remember this story? And they tore the tiles and they opened up a hole in the, in, in the roof and they dropped their friend down in front of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He stopped teaching everybody there who had come to hear him and he put his whole attention on this paralyzed man in front of him. You remember that when Jesus was walking along to heal Jairus' daughter, um, and he was in a crowd, and they were, he, was, he was going to this home to raise this little girl from the dead, and, and that, that would be a great miracle, and everybody was happy to see this. But he, as he was going along, uh, what the King James Bible says was an, a woman with an issue of blood. Uh, it, it was, it was a, a lady who had a a tremendous physical medical problem that nobody could cure. And she pushed her way through the crowd and she reached out and she just barely touched the hem of his garment. And when she did so, Jesus stopped, cleared everybody out, had her brought to him, and ultimately said, my daughter, your faith has made you well. He stopped everything for her. When Jesus was walking along in, in, through the streets of Jericho, um, a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus kept crying out. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody said, you know, Bartimaeus, keep quiet, keep quiet. You know, we finally got the celebrity here. You're wrecking things. Jesus stopped and said, no, bring him to me. He shut down everything that he might show interest in the life of Bartimaeus. And when we were lost and dead in our sins... And when we cared nothing about God, when the best you could get out of us was that we sort of believed in God and stuff, 
Jesus gave up the glory of heaven, became a man, and went to a cross, and he died for us. That is how interested he is in you and in me. But Satan was telling the lie and, and, and was saying, look, God's not really interested in you. He tell, tells you all these commandments because he just wants to yank you around. No, in point of fact, every part of the Word of God, every syllable of the Word of God is for our well-being and our welfare. Well, we continue the story and um, at, at, as we read on. This is, then I think is in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one's, one wise, she looked at it, and she decided, you know, God is not worthy. God is unworthy. God is unworthy because my definition of wisdom is better than his definition of wisdom. My definition of nutrition is better than his definition of nutrition. My definition of what I really need and what I want is better than God's definition of what I need and what I want. In effect, Eve was thinking to herself, you know, God is not worthy. My thoughts are more worthy than he is. It's an amazing thing to turn to God and say, you know, in in point of fact, uh, God, you, you, you haven't analyzed your own creation very well. I actually know better what should happen. I know better what I should do. I know better what is good. I know better what is desirable. But you, God, God, you're unworthy. You know, at best, you're God and stuff. And we treat God as he is, as though he is unworthy. But the day will come when every eye shall behold him, even those that pierced him. And at that moment, then, every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those of us whom God has, has blessed us with the presence of his Spirit and has called us into his family and who by his grace has chosen us and saved us by, by the blood of Christ, For all eternity, we will look at the throne of God and we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us. On the cross, all of the world said, This man, Jesus, he's not worthy of life. But it was on the cross of Jesus Christ that we see that God, the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God is worthy of all praise and all glory. He's worthy of being proclaimed holy three times over. Holy, holy, holy. God is worthy of the obedience of our lives. God is worthy of the surrender of our souls to him. God is worthy of possessing everything that we are and all that we have. God, in point of fact, is worthy. And by the way, I think that's why people say I believe in God and stuff because I don't want to think about the fact that God is worthy of all praise and obedience in my life. Well, we read on. The the scripture says that when she saw that and she was uh, contemplating these things, she took the fruit, she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Eve thought about it a little bit. Adam just, hey, whatever. I guess in fairness you could say about Adam he was going along with the crowd, but that might be a different uh, story. But then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, like maybe God won't notice what we're noticing right now, that we have departed from his plan for us. They knew that they were vulnerable. They knew that they had sinned, and they were trying to cover it up because now at this point they've got to believe that God is unaware of what's really happening, that they can actually get away with it. And so they sew the loincloths together, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I mean, she ate the fruit, and Adam ate the fruit because they thought it would make them wise. And what's the first thing they do? They try to hide from God, wearing fig leaves. You almost want to say, Eve, how is that wisdom thing working for you right now? Adam, how is that, that, that knowing more than God knows, how is that working for you right now? You're hiding from him. You know, the, the joy and the anticipation that you, you used to feel when you heard God approaching, now it fills you with dread. And you're doing your very best to keep God out of your life and keep him distant from you. And you actually believe that God is unaware of what you've done. When you believe in God and stuff, you start to think that God really doesn't know what I'm doing. He's not really aware of what's going on. He's not really engaged in my life. But in point of fact, there's not a, not a bird that falls. There's not a blade of grass that grows. There's not a hair on our heads that, that, that is in existence. But that God is aware of it. And God knows Jesus in his life was constantly exhibiting an awareness of what was really happening. You know, when the the crowds in John chapter 2, when the crowds came and they they wanted to hail him and everybody said, yeah, Jesus, great, great, good miracle. The Bible says he didn't trust himself to them because he knew what was in the hearts of man. He actually knows what's going on in our heads. Time and again, the scripture indicates to us that Jesus knew what people were thinking about him. In John chapter 13, the scripture says that Jesus, knowing that his hour is coming, knowing his own and loving his own, knowing who was really aligned with him and who wasn't, knowing that Judas was there in that room about to betray him, yet he still took the, the towel and the basin and he washed their feet. See, Jesus is not unaware. It's not like we surprise him with things. You know, it it is true that sometimes when we sin, we feel like, well, God, if God ever finds out about this, he'll never forgive me. You know, if Jesus really knew what I was doing and what I was thinking, he would have no place for me. In point of fact, God knows. In point of fact, Jesus knows. And that's, that's not to discourage us, that's to encourage us. Because what that means is, Jesus, knowing all things, went to the cross for all our sins. And there's no limit to what we can bring before the Father's throne of grace and set it before his feet and ask only that he would be glorified, his will would be done. 
confessing all our sins, knowing that he is completely and totally faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is infinitely aware of who we are and what has gone on in our lives. He's absolutely um, certain of who we are. But when we believe in God and stuff, we feel like, well, God doesn't really know if I don't tell him, and maybe I better not. But when we believe in the God who created us, the God who knows us inside out because he made us, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, when we believe in this God, we have a boldness to be open and honest before God, completely, entirely uh, surrendered to him. Well, what went wrong? Essentially, what went wrong is that Adam and Eve sunk down into believing in God and stuff, and, and essentially they started keeping God at a distance from them before and after they, they partook of the fruit of the tree. And the Scripture says that God called to them, and he said, Where are you? Again, you know, God knew pretty well where they are. He's actually saying, Adam, Eve, think about where you are. Think about where you could be right now. Think about where you are. There's like a a difference between the two. You could have a perfect fellowship right now. Instead, you're hiding from me. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You know, God, it's not really my fault. It really isn't my fault. And God asked the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me on that. You know, God, it's not really my fault. And when you believe in God and stuff, you'll, you'll swallow that lie. You know, God, it's not really my fault. But when you know that God is our creator, who loves us with a passion, that was so interested in our lives that he gave his only begotten son, that just by believing in him, we never perish, but we have everlasting life. We say, God, it's not my fault, but once we come to know he's our creator, the one who loves us, the one who sent his son for us, then we have a boldness inspired by the Holy Spirit to come to the Father and confess our sins and in the name of Jesus receive forgiveness of our sins. We won't look at it this morning, but, but God goes on to... Um, tell Adam and Eve how their lives are going to be restructured now, but especially to, to tell them, look, you know, there's going to be an enmity between you and the evil one. But one day his head will be crushed. And at that moment, the, the history of God working in his people to bring the Messiah to earth to die for sinners was begun. The history of it was begun at that moment. You see, when you believe in God and stuff, you miss out on who God is. When you know that God is our creator and we are his creation, and that in his son, Jesus Christ, we are a new creation, then you really know who God is. And then your life is put together. And then you are the person God wants you to be, and you're the person that ultimately, the only person that will glorify him. You know, in a few moments, we'll come to the Lord's table, and though uh, spread out uh, in, in, in many different homes, in many different places. Yet there will be a oneness in our partaking.
A oneness because there is only one God. There's only one Son, Jesus Christ. And there is only one Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I, I would just challenge you to just stand in awe or sit in awe, wherever you are, be in awe of this Creator God who loved us so much that He didn't leave us in our sin, hiding in, in bushes, but rather He brought us to Himself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because what went wrong was our sin and our belief in God and stuff. But what is right is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and His grace that calls us to Him. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, how grateful I am that You have not left any of us in our sin, but You come to us and You challenge us, You confront us, You convict us. So, Father, I ask that we would have the courage of faith to lay bare before you all of our sins, all of our rebellion, and ask only for the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ to be made whole before your throne of grace. And, Father, that you would work in such a way that in these next few moments, as we remember the shed blood and the broken body of Christ, that we will once again just worship you and adore you, our God and our Creator. In Jesus' name. Amen.